thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Back Chat, exploring the five pillars of health, thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also your neurology with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Bianca Dobson. Welcome to Back Chat. My name is Paul Bergamo, and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Back Chat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. Refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in neurology. Today's back chat will cover the pillar of thinking and also neurology, and we'll discuss a, a non-drug natural approach to those suffering from headaches. To help me, as always, for the health podcast, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow chiropractor and co-host, Bianca Dobson. G'day, Bianca. How are you going? Hi, Paul. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. It's uh, an interesting one today because of the fact is chiropractors, we've had situations where with headaches, the traditional medical model of looking at headaches and migraines, often from a medical perspective, never looks at the neck as being a, a component ever associated with this sort of presentation. And uh, it can be frustrating from a, from a practice perspective when we see patients who come in with headaches and it's never been explored from, say, a medical perspective. Have you found that sort of challenge over your career, Bianca? Oh, absolutely. I think I can think of numerous cases where, you know, the chiropractic has really helped relieve headaches. And Paul, I'm sure the same, sometimes people come in even with a different condition and through their chiropractic care, their headaches are relieved also. So I, I really, I'm, I'm keen to investigate this further today and just see what role does that neck component actually play? Terrific. And today we're going to meet a physiotherapist who has also challenged his view for over the last three decades with a mix of his contemporary research, challenged his view, clinical expertise, as well as an evidence-informed practice. Our guest today is Dr. Dean Watson. Dean is a titled musculoskeletal physiotherapist who completed his undergraduate physiotherapy qualification in 1976, Bianca. That's a few years ago. Dean, that's a good year, 1976. <laughs> <laughs> and, and subsequently a diploma in advanced <laughs> manipulative therapy with honours, a master's degree by original uh, research and a doctor of philosophy also by his own original research. Dean is founder and director of the Watson Headache Clinic and Watson Headache Institute. He continues to consult, present courses to manual therapists nationally and internationally and research the role of cervical afferents in the trigeminal cervical nucleus, otherwise known as brain stem sensitization environment. Hi, Dean. How are you going? Good, Paul. Excellent. Look, congratulations on what you've done from a research perspective, teaching perspective, and you're still in practice, you were saying earlier, so you still see patients quite actively. Oh, yes, yes. Look, the buzz you get when you change someone's life is intoxicating. For me, it's the best drug out. I, I, I'll always do um, always do some consulting, uh, and I think it's a, it's a byproduct. It's not the reason I do it, but as a teacher, to be seen to be at the coalface, it gives you credibility. And I do it because I, the difference you make for people, and that's why we're all doing what we're doing. Changing people's life is just it's – we're in a really fortunate position. Hi, Bianca. Hi, Dean. Um, Dean, your perspective perhaps contradicts the medical model's view of headache and migraine. Uh, tell us, was it more frustration in a limited model to look at headaches or was it more from your own investigations with patients when you're seeing the improvement and management? It was really about clinical experience. And only getting into it, then I realised how frustrating the medical model is and continues to be because the current medical model uh, is thought by many within the model as being um, outdated. It's not kept up with the contemporary research uh, and it really is quite confusing. The 
classification system as it stands today was originally devised for research purposes, but it's been used as diagnostic clinical purposes, and it really is a dog's breakfast. It's all over the place. There's something like 300 different headache types described. Are there 300 causes? No, there are not. I, I just had a, a lot of people coming to see me um, in the clinic with a whole range of headache presentations, and I saw uh, as a result of um, taking my time, getting good results, that we have a, a far greater role to play in headache rather than just this cervicogenic headache box. I just wish we could get away from the term cervicogenic headache because it does a disservice to the role cervical afferents play in a whole range of conditions. It's too polarizing. And when you talk to the World Health Environment, you talk to neurologists and there are many who say, look, it doesn't exist, and, and, there are, and those that do say it exists so it's only 4% of headache or something like that? Well, come on. We all know it's much, much more than that. Um, so that's what I found as my, my clinical perspective as a result of treating patients. Um, but then just getting into this headache world, it's been such a frustrating journey. But I can't let it go because I know I know the difference it makes to people with a whole range of headache and migraine conditions. At yeah. least looking at the neck, what a difference it makes. Yeah, fantastic. And I suppose when you, you've talked about the term brain stem or sensitization or desensitization, I suppose, as part of the management strategy. For our listeners on Batcheck, can you expand a bit on what that involves, what it is from your perspective? Okay, the trigeminocervical nucleus or the lower brain stem, um, it receives information from the trigeminal system, so structures with a trigeminal innovation and, of course, information from structures supplied by the top three spinal nerves and this information together then goes to the cortex, where the cortex has to interpret what's going on in the body. What the, the most recent research is, and I'm talking about 20 years of research now, and of course in the adult world that's recent research, uh, has shown that the brainstem is sensitised. So that means information coming from the trigeminal system is exaggerated as it passes through the sensitised brainstem on the way to the cortex. So uh, one of the world's leading authorities, uh, research, uh, Professor Peter Goadsby, has suggested that migraine is a sensory processing disorder where normal, increased normal subclinical activity in the trigeminal system is there's an exaggeration of it as it passes through the sensitised brainstem and the cortex is receiving distorted information. So I liken the brainstem to an audio speaker. A sensitised brainstem is an audio speaker with the volume control turned up. Now, here's the, here's the deal. You know, I've mentioned before that there are something like 300 types of headache described. And the International Headache Society, their diagnostic classification, puts these in separate boxes with unknown, unknown causes. Uh, you know, we've got the primary headache types, and, and by definition, the primary headache, so you've got the migraine, tension headache, uh, the cluster headache presentations, they, um, uh, the, the cause is unknown. So, so that's the definition of primary headache. We're secondary headache. That's the other headache group we have. Are those headaches secondary to a known cause? So cervicogenic headache fits in that box. But the debate has gone on for decades as to whether or not uh, tension headache and migraine headache are separate entities with unknown different pathophysiologies or are they just different presentations of the one pathophysiology, of the one disorder. And the research shows that in migraine we have – in a migraine-free state, intermittently, in a migraine-free state, the brainstem, the trigeminal cervical nucleus, is sensitised. Here's the deal. So 
is a brainstem in tension headache. So is a brainstem in cluster headache. So is a brainstem in menstrual migraine. I could never understand why a fall in estrogen can lead to a one-sided headache. It doesn't make sense. Estrogen is going to affect both sides of it equally. And we now know that the underlying issue in women with menstrual migraines is a sensitised brainstem. So this supports the idea, the notion that, in fact, we're dealing with just different presentations of the one disorder, and that disorder is a sensitised trigeminosis cervical nucleus. We've got recent research done in the, um, oh, the mid-2000s uh, where it was, uh, no, sorry, 2006, something like that, 2002, by Roger Cady and colleagues in, uh, in North America. And they came up with this hypothesis. It's called the convergence hypothesis. And they describe an escalating process of sensitization. So if this process starts and then stops soon after it starts, you end up with a tension presentation. But if it goes on unabated, you end up with a full-blown migraine. And that, so this is a convergence hypothesis, and this is not the first sort of continuum concept that's been thrown around. But this one makes a lot of sense. When you think about uh, – I have people come along and say, Dean, my, my, uh, my head back's starts in my forehead. Cross forehead's a bit like a, a dull ache, which is a sort of tension headache presentation. But then, and they're not sure whether to take their trip tan, immigrant, nuts, omeg, narrow meg, et cetera. They're not sure whether to take it. Is it going to be a migraine? Is it not going to be a migraine? Because what happens for a lot of people is that this then, within half an hour, this frontal ache goes to become more unilateral. Then the character changes. It becomes more throbbing. And then they start to feel sick and photophobic and phonophobic. Like it's, there's this real cascade. You can see this. They're describing a developing process. Uh, so that is really exciting. And, and, and it, Reinforces what the research reinforces this this particular hypothesis. It's really interesting because we all know that people with migraine are told that migraine is not just another headache. Well, the research would suggest it is, albeit a very, very, very severe headache. I'm going to diminish what people go through. It's awful. It ruins people's lives. But uh, it, it, research would suggest that we're dealing with a you know a, a single process. I don't. For me, a diagnosis. It's not about a diagnosis. Diagnosis is just based on a set of signs and symptoms. It doesn't tell us what we're dealing with. If we are dealing with a common disorder, and research would suggest that's a sensitised brainstem, surely optimal management is about identifying the reason for sensitisation, reason for turning up the volume control. And when you look at the influences on the trigeminocervical nucleus, essentially you've got four. You've got information, afferent information from the trigeminal system, afferent information from the upper cervical nerves, then you've got the serotonin influence, and then you've got the diffuse NOx inhibitory control system. So that's a, a descending inhibitory system. Now, I'm prepared to accept that maybe, just maybe, with a global, a generalised headache, it might be sensitisation as a result of insufficient serotonin, or it might be superspinal influences, so top-down. But they cannot be primarily responsible for a unilateral headache. Okay. Now, there are only two sources of head pain here. When you look at the, the essentially the, 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 the four primary influences on the trigeminal cervical nucleus, there are only two sources of head pain here, trigeminal and cervical. We are the gatekeepers of the upper cervical spine. And so and, and what really gets up my goat a bit is that we've got diagnostic criteria for cervicogenic headache, a musculoskeletal condition being established by people who aren't skilled in musculoskeletal medicine with respect to neurologists. And, you know, it's a generalisation, but there are not neurologists who say we're not, we're not the best people to be examining next when it comes to headache. 
So yeah, yeah I, that's yes. <laughs> so for me, I, I'd like to think that. So that brainstem sensitisation for me, it's a, an audio speaker with a volume control turned up, and elementary neuroanatomy, elementary neuroanatomy tells us that the upper cervical afferents are in a potential sensitising role. Bianca, isn't it interesting? I mean, I mean, what uh, Dean's providing is a real neurological mechanism to headaches, and and also not pigeon pigeonholing uh, diagnoses to say this is what you've got. It's black and white. That's what it is. And we know every day there's variations. It's really a continuum between moving between phases, I suppose, is really what, what we actually see in real life. Is What what do you think, Bianca? Absolutely. And oh, Bianca, Bianca. Yeah, sorry, Bianca. It's, it's, many people with migraine occasionally experience a lesser headache, resembling a tension headache, and vice versa. We This is a dog's breakfast because we're trying to categorise things that are not distinct entities. There's so much overlap. Sorry, Bianca, go on. Yeah. No, I was just I was going to add to that. You breaking that down into those four inputs, that's fantastic. That's as a as a chiropractor and you know my love and um, kind of move off into the neurology type world. I want to know more than just a joint and a muscle and a ligament and a tendon. And your explanation of that really that makes a lot of sense. I really, I'm going to be looking at things a little differently, Dean. Yeah. Can I ask further to that? Can I ask how does how does your with those four main areas how does your management protocol um, differ from between a, perhaps an acute headache presentation to someone who is presenting with chronic headache? Okay. Uh, well, firstly, when you say chronic headache, we're talking about something that's that's gone on for three months or longer, I presume. And you're talking about acute headache where the history is less, or you're talking about someone that comes in with a migraine. Right. Okay. Right. So for someone who comes in with a full-blown migraine, it's really hard to, to to change it. And sometimes you do change it there and then, but other times they walk out and it's no different. But when I ring them later in the day, they say, hey, Dean, it went two or three hours later, and that's never happened. Like So that's a first, you know, that, that's a great sign, clearly. So what we do is whilst not making a change at the time, for many it accelerates recovery. So this migraine ordinarily goes on for two days, for example, and I ring them, as I say, that evening, and I say, Dean, it's just, it just resolved, you know, within two or three hours. I went and laid down and I got up and, and, and it was gone. So so for me, uh, it, it, it's hard when you've got – I'd rather see someone <laughs> who comes in when the headache is not present. <laughs> you can get a much better history and do a much more comprehensive examination and treatment. So um, the I, – I don't change my – I don't change the way I go about it. With, a, with someone with an acute presentation. Um, and for me, the average length of history of patients to my clinic is 15 years, and 90% of these people are self-referred. Wow. Uh, and so uh, I'm seeing people with 20, 30 years of headache, and you would think that it's going to, with such a long history, it's going to take a lot of treatment, but it doesn't. It doesn't. If you know what you're looking for, I, I don't like guesswork, uh, and I, I go about it in a way where there is no guesswork. Because I have actually been accused of being irresponsible uh, in in a uh, in my earlier early one in my headache career because I was writing uh, articles for newspapers etc about um, the role of the neck in migraine. Um, but there were people um, within my profession who were saying uh, it's irresponsible, Dan, because the neck doesn't have a role to play. Well, the neuroscience, the neuroanatomy, tells us it's irresponsible not to examine the headache. And so, so uh, I, yes, so to, as I say, I, I go on and, and, and treat people who've had 20 years of headache and 
it's really it's mind blowing because what happens for me to determine the uh, relevancy of a uh, cervical afferents in a headache presentation is to reproduce the pain of headache, and then as I sustain the technique which I use, I'm using to reproduce the pain of headache, the headache lessens in 30 seconds, 40 seconds, 60 seconds. So that for me, as far as I'm aware, well, for me it's the most powerful clinical tool we have of determining, determining cervical relevancy. Um, and I, I, I looked at this in my PhD, looking at that, because that was a really interesting question of mine. I, I really started sustaining for all the wrong reasons. I'm not quite sure because I grew up, well, one of my big mentors was Jeff Maitland. Uh, I spent 12 months, one of nine students with, with Jeff Maitland for 12 months, an amazing teacher, an amazing teacher. To watch him take a subjective examination is just amazing. And arguably, the subjective examination is far more important in headache than in any other musculoskeletal condition because in other conditions we have reproducible objective signs to tell us whether or not we're getting somewhere. But with headache, you don't. Subjective features. But anyway, the, the maintenance approach uh, involves oscillation. So just just moving the joints through range with different grades. I started I started sustaining because I thought what I needed to achieve was creep, you know, remodeling of soft tissues. But supposedly it takes 100 hours to stretch collagen and all the rest of it. So if the headache to be getting less in uh, you know, 30 seconds, 46, 40 seconds or so, um, it, it can't be as a result of that. And, and that in itself became the, the um, subject of my PhD. But, uh, yeah, so, yeah. Interesting. And I suppose it's part of your management protocol. I mean, if you're seeing patients that have had headaches for long time periods, what sort of frequency of treatment would you say, okay, I need to have a hunch by now, this should be some changes happening, especially if you've seen someone for many years who've had it, who've seen, been everywhere. I mean, you're not going to necessarily get it straight away. It's going to be some continual treatment for a period of time, I'd imagine, at least. Well, for me, the, the, after I do what I do in that initial I say to the patient, I, we expect to see appreciable changes in four treatments, five treatments max. Now, I'm not saying this to be totally free, yep. but to justify going on beyond that, you and I need to see that your investment is worthwhile here. Yep. And the best chance of creating a change in those first few treatments is those treatments to be close together. For example, I'd obviously see someone on a Monday, I'd see them on a Thursday, and then ask them to make a couple of appointments next time around. If they, if they come in with constant headache and, and, and within two, three treatments, the constancy's gone, it's now intermittent, then I'm going to postpone. I'll increase the time between the sessions. If I've created that change in the first four or five treatments, then what I'm going to do is then, okay, let's leave it three weeks. I mean, still good, great, everything's feeling good. Okay, let's leave it six weeks. So I'm going to increase the time between the treatments, but sort of holding holding its hand for a while. And and people who've had a long history, that by now they're, they're, they're happy to be proactive rather than reactive. And in, in this world, I suppose, with chronic presentations, and what's your take when you need to perhaps sometimes integrate other practitioners, you know, in regards as, as a multi multimodal team? With you, what's any tips that you can pass on, Dean? Because it's, we'll have some practitioners listen to this who are, who are, who are yes. getting into this area. What's what's your thoughts there? I think there's a couple of things I want to say about this, Paul. I'm just going to go back to your point on chronic pain will be there if the splinter is still there. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm saying we are losing our skills to find the splinter because the biopsychosocial model has moved me now. For a long time, when I grew up professionally, the pendulum was very much in the manual therapy area. And I get, and we all knew that the you know, psychological facts were there, but now it's an industry, and but so the pendulum has gone way, way into that into that space now. It needs to come back. It needs to come back. So 
Uh, I'm going to talk about, um, we might touch on yellow flags later, but um, uh, so in terms of bringing other practitioners or looking at a, a, a multi-practitioner um, approach, look, people with, I'd be depressed if I had two migraines a week and that had been, been my life for the last 10 years, but people are told, oh, your depression's causing your migraine. No, get rid of their migraine and the depression lifts, their demeanour lifts. They're not anxious about when the next attack's going to happen, that they can go out and make plans. This The yellow flag stuff just goes away. You know, a colleague of mine in Brisbane, she calls headache and migraine yellow flag city because people with chronic headache, chronic migraine, yellow flags all around the place, and it's very easy to be hijacked by yellow flags. Come on, let's just get in and change the pain. And then a lot of this stuff just goes. There's very few people that I see that actually need the headache or the headache is there for another reason. So I tend not to use from a uh, – I'm, I'm not a counsellor. Many of my colleagues that are going into the pain counselling area, I'm not. I'm damn good at what I do with my hands, and if I feel as though that's an issue, then I'm going to draw on one of my colleagues who goes into the, uh, um, you know, the counselling on the, on the chronic pain, etc. that sort of thing. So uh, from a uh, – now, Paul Bianca, we had a – we had our first Watson Headache International Symposium in Milan in May this year. And uh, I organised a scientific program. Neurologists come along. Uh, Dr. Di Lorenzo, lovely guy, he spoke on the ketogenic diet, the ketogenic diet for migraine. And, in fact, research shows that it has a significant effect. It doesn't change the frequency. It changes the, 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 the intensity associated symptoms. So this de-inflammatory diet, the keto diet, and, and even more so with cluster headache. So he's done research with those with cluster headache as well. Significant effect on reducing cluster headache days and so forth. So uh, it, I don't think diet is going to be the primary the, the, the primary sensitising factor because, well, not a unilateral headache at least, mm. because diet is not going to choose one side of the head, one side of that sort of thing. So I will look at lifestyle choices like that. So I, I'm talking about a ketogenic diet, but I'm not the best for well, actually following one myself. But um, it, I'll send them off to someone for dieting, dieting counselling. Yep. Isn't it interesting, Bianca, what Dean's um, alluded to here is the fact that sometimes we just forget, let's fix the cause and suddenly everything else might just eradicate. We don't need to have all these other components, whereas we, we sometimes get lost in uh, how much is psychosocial, how much is emotional, and then get caught up in yeah. the whole pattern, whereas, you know, and, 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 the, and the push towards it. What do you think, Bianca? Absolutely, and if we were, you know, thinking of a, a pure physical, you know, a sprained ankle or something else, we wouldn't be giving the best crutches or finding a wonderful wheelchair. We'd be trying to get the joint to heal. So I can relate to that, Dean. That's well, a- headache is very emotional. You know, for me, when I've got someone, someone with me, and I, I, I say to them, look, I, I want to be able to demonstrate to you the connection between your neck and your headache. And the most powerful way, when I move the joints in a way in slow, sustained, move the joints in a way designed to move, if that joint's responsible, then I'll create the pain of your headache. And they look at me and say, what? You're going to do what? I spent all my life trying to avoid this. Year. Right, it'll go away as soon as I take my thumb off. And that's what happens. But when you do this with some people, they burst into tears, not because you've hurt them, but after 20 years of being told by their doctor their neck's not involved, they get it. Ding. So it's a very emotional um, time. Yeah. Mm. Dean, is this what led you to think about that further study and then go into a PhD? Was it this type of experience you were having back in um, 2016, I think you did that, and a little bit later in your practice, in your career? 
Um, look, I, I did a master's degree uh, by research, as you've mentioned, in 1997. I looked at the deep neck plexus. Um, so the craniosurvival flexion test, if you like, well, it wasn't known as that then. Uh, so I, I looked at natural head posture and the deep survival flexes in my masters. And Gwen Joel uh, was my, uh, who's also been a mentor of mine, was was the, one of the examiners for that masters. Uh, and that then sort of led to my journey. But uh, I, I, I've been saying this for decades. My message, uh, and people say, Dean, it's time to put up or shut up. Where's your evidence? And uh, I get we live in this age of evidence. But, uh, and so I started a PhD at the University of South Australia on my way back in the um, mid to late 90s. But I wanted to do quantitative research rather than qualitative research. And I spent 12 months looking for a, a quantitative measure here. And then um, in the end, I wasn't going anywhere, so we agreed mutually to finish that. And I went around the world searching for support for a PhD um, uh, the question I wanted to answer, um, but the door, I was searching all the wrong places <laughs> because I'd go to medical departments, uh, I think that support for uh, or PhD of this nature for credibility to have the support of neurologists would be good, but who's going to take on someone who's looking at the neck in relation to migraine? No, that's not going to happen. I'll tell you a bit more about my PhD later, but what happened was that I had a, uh, a patient come in one occasion, well, maybe 10 12 years ago, he said, Dean, he said, I don't have a headache at the moment, but I'm always tender to touch. And he pointed, you know, tapped his head. It's always tender. I said, okay, so allodynia, central sensitization. Mm. So I laid him down and I reproduced the pain of his headache and within 90 seconds it went. Then I did it again and again and over four or five holes of holding the, the technique reproducing the pain of headache, the head pain just got less. It became less intense and it eased more quickly as I was holding it. So I then sat him up and I said, now, can you touch your head again? It went, gone. gone. What happened? It's gone. Central sensitization had changed. Now, this has been there 20 years. Central sensitization had changed within a matter of minutes. So this chronic stuff, <laughs> uh, so I'm talking about I'm talking about central sensitization but for a peripheral reason. It's identifying the role of cervical afferents. So your, with your PhD endeavours to finally get to your PhD that someone would listen to it, what was the, I mean, you've described an, in some, some of the fines, but what was your major overall fines to pass on to those of us who are listening to this uh, podcast? Well, it, it was, um, I measured, I used the, the blank reflex, uh, which is trigeminofacial brainstem reflex, and it's a, the blank reflex is it's three components and R1, R2, R3. R2 is a component that measures uh, uh, nociceptive processing, general nociceptive processing. And uh, what this blink reflex has been used extensively uh, for, this has been the main measuring tool, identifying brainstem sensitization in a range of well, migraine. With tension headache, there's another reflex called the trigeminosurvival reflex, which once again is, is it's similar, but instead of uh, it's not a blink. The, the electrodes are on the sternomastoid, uh, and that's been used extensively looking at tension headache and also cluster headache. So I looked at, I measured reproduction and resolution of headache at the same time as they were getting blinks intermittently. And we watched the behaviour of the blink reflex change, and the, that behaviour indicated that we were having a desensitising effect 
on the brainstem, on the trigeminocervical nucleus, turning down the volume control, which is what the tripped hands do, narrowing, zomic. They abort migraine by desensitising the brainstem. But, of course, it only does it temporarily because it's not getting the reason for the sensitisation. So this this was the seminal time in my PhD, and then, to my knowledge, this is the first time a manual cervical intervention has been shown to affect the very core of the migraine process, and indeed, the primary headache process. So that was really exciting. And my wife will tell you, I took my foot off the pedal because that's the, I went into this PhD with a question. Why would I, at the age of 56, do a PhD, for heaven's sake? I had a question, a burning question to answer, and uh, that was it. And I got the answer. Well, it, look, it's a, what needs to happen now is ongoing research and longer, a longer study of that to, to see the, uh, the permanency of that desensitising effect. I get that. You know, it's, it's a, uh, you know, a drop in the ocean, a seed, hopefully, and that things will grow from here. But, yeah, that's, uh, that's essentially the PhD. But in the end, a whole lot of people supporting me. I need to get that PhD done. <laughs> so I put the foot back on the pedal and got down the way. Congratulations. Mighty effort. Thank you. I, I suppose um, with you being in, in still in clinical practice as well, there's, there's a time issue commitment, I imagine, with the, with the PhD. Now, you're the director of the Watson Headache Clinic and the Watson Headache Institute. How did the institute come about and what's the purpose of it? Well, um, the institute was spawned from the, from the clinic. Uh, the institute is the educational arm of what I'm attempting to do here. So uh, in the mid-'80s, I, I became really frustrated with physiotherapy, uh, I, and it's only sort of, I guess, in the last 10 years I came to recognise what my frustration was, and that was that I wasn't making the difference I thought I would as a physiotherapist, trying to be good at everything. You know, we, we, treat, we all treat a myriad of conditions, and I'm just not that sort of person. <laughs> I want to be, do something. But back then, you know, people didn't try. I actually thought about leaving physiotherapy. Uh, but back then, in the mid '80s, you didn't change careers you know, midlife as, as often as people do these days, and, and forced to do these days, unfortunately. Um, so I stayed within the profession, and I, I did the master's degree. And when I finished that in uh, 1991, the results of that created such a lot of interest in the within the profession and indeed the public. I, I decided from that moment on, I would just treat headache and migraine. So I established the Headache Clinic in Adelaide in 1991. And since then, I've got something like 26,000 hours of experience with over 8,000 people with headache and migraine. Now, it's not the volume of experience that's particularly important here. It's the nature of the experience. And the nature of the experience is one in which over 90% of these people were self-referred, which means I've got, I got to see a whole range of headache and migraine conditions that we are taught uh, that there's no cervical influence, there's no cervical input, uh, or the cervical spine cannot be responsible. Well, my perspective as a result of this experience, is that we should be examining the next of all benign recurring headache sufferers, all primary headache sufferers, irrespective of the diagnosis. So that then I, I became really, really excited about, about that. This was happening. But then, so I've developed this uh, clinical approach. It was coined the Watson Headache Approach in Europe. I went back one year and a, a doctor had, had referred uh, some patients to one of the people who'd been on the course 12 months ago who got good results with a, with a with headache, and he says, oh, would this person be suitable for the Watson headache approach? Well, that's where it was. Anyway, so <laughs> I, I had, this, had this headache clinic. I've got this approach, but I'm more, I'm about more than that. This is about raising the awareness of cervical afferents in headache and migraine in health professionals and in the public. So that's the institute. So the institute, uh, we, we run our 
and courses for health practitioners as manual therapists, so physios and chiropractors and osteopaths will come along and manual therapy doctors in Europe uh, that they come to. So uh, the Institute runs those courses and also uh, educational programs for the public, just raising the awareness of, of that. So this is the, over, the overriding sort of aim is to just, as I say, raise the profile. We all, we've all treated the other survival spine successfully for headache and, and migraine and, and the approach I've developed is just another tool for the toolbox. Okay. So, but as I say, it's more about uh, my passion is to just make people think more about the neck, and this becomes skilled. Like if I was to, if before I die, a skilled examination of the upper neck becomes routine when investigating primary headache conditions, I would die a happy man. I don't think I'm going to get there, but uh, that's, that's my that's my vision. It's a big one. It's a vision, but that's it. So that that's the institute, uh, yeah. So and, and the clinic, and as I said, I'll always do a bit of consulting um, as long as I can, and I'll always be teaching. So Dan, I can see now in regards where you've come from, where you're at now, and is that I suppose your vision to, to where you where you want to leave things in the sense of your role? I mean, you've got strong advocation for the role of the, of, of the spine, the upper neck, with with headache, primary headache, and migraine conditions. And I now see how you've gone from the clinic to the institute, the teaching arm. Your overall vision and what you want to hope to achieve going forward is—is is that what you've just encapsulated there? In the sense, yeah, look, I, I think so, Paul. Uh, yeah, I can't put it. You know, I, I think I'd like every everyone with headache and migraine ha- has access to to a skilled examination, a responsible skilled examination uh, of their upper neck. When, when uh, irrespective of the diagnosis, of course, it's appropriate that, that with new headache um, that they screen by the neurologist. I get that. But can we just – wouldn't it be great to have a triage here to work with neurologists yeah, and the GP? Um, and so, you know, I, it's really, really hard work with the medical profession when it comes to neck and headache and migraine. And, and the best people to approach, I find, is the GPs because the, they've got the difficult job most difficult job of all. So they send the patient off to the neurologist. The neurologist, uh, the patient comes back, often frustrated, uh, more medication, etc., etc. The GP is the one that's pulling the hair out. And so I approach the GPs and say, look, um, I can I can identify survival relevancy. You know, because many people, many of your colleagues are saying it can be really hard from a subjective presentation alone to determine whether you're dealing with migraine or whatever it is. I can help you with. Um, identifying survival relevancy. Uh, to, to actually go to them and say, I will treat the neck for migraine, you're probably going to be dismissed. Mm. <laughs> but you can say, survival relevancy, maybe, and I can, I can invite yourself to be part of their team. Nevertheless, it's still, it's still a long journey. It's, it's still a long journey. For me, it's the public. The public, they're, they're leaving the medical model of headache in droves for complementary medicine. They're leaving to compliment because they're frustrated with that. I had um, an experience uh, way back in – because when I set up the headache clinic, it was the front room in my house. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, by, by chance, somehow Channel 7 heard what I was doing. So in 1996, I think it was, they came and did an interview with me for Today Tonight. And this was shown nationally around, around the country. We had 7,000 phone calls to the clinic in a week. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that now, we, what we learned from this is that headache and migraine is poorly managed. Yep, we know that. Mm. But about 70% of these people have not considered neck intervention or neck treatment. 
that you don't get migraines. So we've got some work to do. And uh, as I say, it's it's the public, those that are suffering, that uh, they're the ones that we need to reach out to. And in a way, too, they don't need their buttons pushed. They just want good, credible information, good, credible information, accurate information. We all know that research doesn't become clinical practice for 20 years. Can we, can we just you know, get out really contemporary information to the public in a credible way? No, so, uh, yes, that's uh, – that's where I'm at. Well, then we've reached that stage of the show, and it's been really fascinating to hear your, your intake into what you've done and from a primary clinical perspective to research to, to some of the personal challenges you've had with this whole process as well because I'm sure there's been some barriers and, and uh, obstacles in the course. There's no questions about that. So uh, yes, I can't let it go, Paul. I can't let it go. <laughs> I just know the difference it makes. Well, I'll let you let it go now because we're going to ask you about what makes you tick, what's – What's a, you know inspirational moment that perhaps has has uh, made you make take the course you've taken? Because I know a lot of our listeners would be really fascinated to hear that because certainly it's been a it's been a, a great career you've had. Well, I mentioned uh, doing the master's degree. I've having been frustrated, and then staying in the profession to do the master's degree, and then I became excited at the results and, and, and the attention it got. Um, but there were, I. I Faced with a real challenge because I was at that time in partnership with three other people, large practice, large clinic, going really, really well, a general clinic, musculoskeletal general clinic. And I just, yeah, I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, and I went to my partners and said, Look, can we set up a, can I set up a, a sub clinic within the general clinic just looking at headache, migraine? And they, they said no. And I thought, What? I'm, and and I really so I was at the, at the crossroads because I just knew something was telling me, oh, you, Dean, you've got to do this. And yet, you know, I, I, I was leaving. I would be leaving a very successful practice, you know, successful, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I just knew that I I knew I had to do it. But anyway, around the time, around that time, there was a movie going around called Strictly Boring, yeah. and there's a line in the movie that goes something like this. A life lived in fear is a life half lived. So I thought, yep, okay, Dan, go for it. So I jumped off the cliff with my strictly ballroom parachute on and history. <laughs> <laughs> and but no, it was scary. But you know what? Within two weeks I was covering my overheads. Because I, I didn't I didn't I didn't go to you know, I wasn't I wasn't sort of poaching patients from my colleagues. I created a whole new market because I, I advertised in, in, in the media that here I'm here to treat headache. And so I created the whole new market. Say. So, and, and now it's, that's grown to be, well, I'd like to think that slowly but surely we are increasing the awareness of the role of Nick in, in a whole range of headache and migraine conditions. We need to determine whether or not cervical afferents are instrumental in sensitisation of the brain set. I, I just don't like this, this box set that we have of headache and migraine. It's not like that. Dean, that, that's some amazing, amazing information. And I love that quote. I, I love that movie too, by the way. <laughs> it was good, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. Let's finish up the show with three take-home messages for our listeners. Look, I think um, to ignore to ignore the role of sight, cervical afferents in the brainstem sensitisation condition is it's negligent. I mean, elementary neuroanatomy tells us the upper cervical afferents are a potential sensitising source. So I, I think we need to change this. As I, said, I wish we could get away from this cervicogenic headache box. It does a disservice to the role cervical afferents can play. So uh, I think that's one thing I really want to push this. I mean, we all, we all accept the notion of cervicogenic headache, 
to turn around and not turn around, but then go beyond that and accept that perhaps, just perhaps, like a labyrinth sensitizing the brain set. That's a brain set. That's a whole new concept again. So that's where I want to take this. Um, so to me, I think that's that's really important as as manual therapists, chiropractors, uh, physios, osteopaths uh, to think about. Uh, I've also mentioned the yellow flags. Those with headache and migraine, average length of history is 15 years. They've got yellow flags all over them. The psychosocial issues are huge, but change their pain, change their pain, and a lot of this stuff vanishes. It's very easy to be hijacked by these yellow flags. You know, I, I, uh, there was an um, uh, experience one of my colleagues recounted to me, in natural fact, she's presented this at our, at our conference, um, where she relates uh, someone coming along um, uh, who had just been discharged from the psychiatric hospital the day before. Uh, and uh, she she knew that this this person um, had attempted suicide, uh, and um, you know, her husband had come in and fortunately got to her before it went ahead. Um, and so, knowing all this, you know, <laughs> as a health practitioner, you think, well, oh my God, where 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 am I going to go with this? What happens if it doesn't go quite well? You know, the treatment and all that sort of thing. Anyway, Trina, my colleague, recounts laying the patient down on the bed. And then looking at a neck and thinking, this is just another neck. And within three treatments, this lady came in. She had a makeup on, dressed up, going back for an interview for an old job. Just amazing. And see, but in that situation, you would be easily hijacked by yellow flags, easily. So for me, look, the research, the literature would suggest that yellow flags in headache and migraine are not as influential as our own back pain. When it comes to headache and migraine, yep. So when you look at the research, they are less influential. Um, so for me, yellow flags, can we just put them off to one side? Just put them yeah, they're, they're, they're there. They will be there. It's mm. emotional. It will be there. And the other thing that I'd like to mention is alternating headaches. So cervicogenic headache, one of the key diagnostic criterion is, in the medical model at least, is that it's side-locked. It always is always, always on the same side. Whereas 80% of migraine, now migraine by definition, is a unilateral headache as well, but 80% of it swaps sides, so alternating headache. So a headache that's alternating cannot be cervicogenic. Absolute rubbish. <laughs> hey, guy, have you seen You've seen people with an alternating lumbar list? Yep. So they come in quite low back pain, okay? Next time they come, you know, they're listing the other way. What's the underlying mechanism of this, do we think? Disc? Disc? Can be, yes. Disc issue? Yep. Yeah, okay. Yep, yep. yep okay. So, when people say to me, Dean, try and explain, can you explain to me what alternating headaches all about? And I say, well, I don't know. And that doesn't sound good, does it, if I'm asking? <laughs> uh, and then when I, so I say, well, here's, here's my explanation. And I use the survival disc. So, for me, an alternating headache is a C2-3 equivalent of an alternating lumbar list. An alternating headache is a cervicogenic headache. Uh, and, and people say, but Dean, you cannot extrapolate what happens in the lumbar disc to survive the disc is structured differently. Now, the work of Mercer and Bogduke showed that indeed was the case, but it's only structured differently in that the annulus, the, the annulus fibrosis posteriorly is much thinner in survival disc than lumbar disc, yes. which for me makes it even reinforces my, my uh, hypothesis. 
because I think that's going to be more vulnerable to asymmetrical distributions of pressure in the disc. I'm not even talking about frank disc bulges here. I'm talking about asymmetrical distribution of pressure in the disc. And we know that the annulus is, is innervated by the sinus vertebral nerve, and that then triggers a proprioceptive and in comes muscle spasm, proprioceptive response of muscle spasm. So alternating headache is a cervicogenic headache. So for those listeners, headache, migraine that's swapping sides, it's a neck. But many of my patients say, I don't know what my doctor's talking about. I know it's my neck. I know it's my neck. So, yep. Fantastic. alternating it, it's a cervicogenic headache. Excellent. Look, I think we could go for a lot longer, couldn't we, Bianca? But we're going to have to call it a day at the moment. So if you want to see Dean further or listen to him speak, there's a couple of options. Uh, Dean, on behalf of the Watson Headache Institute, presents continuing PD sessions to manual therapists, physios, gyros, osteos on examination and treatment and management of the upper cervical spine, not just cervicogenic headache but also in primary headache and migraine conditions. For further information, please check the website www.watsonheadache.com. Also, Dean has been invited to speak at our neurologic education event that will be uh, happening on the sun- in Sydney on Sunday. Oh, sorry, on Friday, the 1st of March to the 3rd of March. So he'll be part of a team of great speakers that will be putting his, his inputs on the, the, the management of headaches. So we're really excited to have you come along, Dean. So thank you so much for that. And for be brilliant. And further information can be seen on www.neurologiceducation.com.au. So, Bianca, what do you reckon? Oh, I think this will be – Dean, I think your information is like a breath of fresh air for practitioners who are dealing with patients every day and see that the neck is involved. You're really substantiating, I think, what a lot of anecdotal evidence in practice is. Yeah. Can I just say, I know we're wrapping it up, but it, this is more, if you think about post-concussion syndrome, the average concussive force is 97 Gs. Cervical structure injured 7 Gs. Do you think that the neck, upper neck is going to be involved here? The symptoms of post-concussion syndrome mirror those of brainstem sensitization. We have a significant role to play here. Yeah, That's right. So anything that comes along, and you know that the the, the centre, the autonomic nervous system sits right there and square in the brainstem. Okay. Sleep, a whole range of things here potentially that we have a role to play. So yes, it's not just about headache. Um, but yeah. So look, thank you guys, Paul, Bianca, real pleasure. Look forward to catching up with you, if not before, in the March next year. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dean. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Backchat podcast. All of the website links of today's podcast will be on our Backchat podcast Facebook page. If you like the show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you one thought. Be the best at what you do, and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.